So we are continuing in the book of Matthew uh, in chapter 9. I'd ask that if you're able, would you please stand as we uh, read God's word? We're going to be picking up in verse 27 today and going through 35. Matthew 9, 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out, and they spread the news about him throughout all the land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness." You can have a seat and let's pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for your uh, beautiful word to us that is living and active. Lord, as we look at this story today um, and look at pictures of blindness, both in the physical sense, but more importantly, in the spiritual sense, and we look at what Jesus came to do to heal people of their sickness and their disease, but ultimately the greater sickness and disease of sin, which leads to death. Lord, we just ask that you would have, help us to have open minds and open hearts, that you would impress upon us what you would want to impress upon us, Lord. This is uh, your message to your people. Would you help me to deliver it in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to you? And may we respond to this word, Lord. May we be people that don't just hear it, but we do it. That we reach out, that we have uh, just an effect that comes from our faith. Be with us during this time, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at two more uh, miracle stories, healing stories here as we continue moving through Matthew. In chapters 8 and 9, we've seen now, including these, a total of 10, 10 different miracles uh, over the course of the last couple chapters. We've seen Jesus heal the lame and the sick and the demon-possessed. We've seen him even uh, raise a woman back to life uh, that was just sleeping, as we were told in, in the last section from last week. And then the final set here, two blind men and a single demon-possessed mute man. Now, the first story of the two blind men is not found in any of the other synoptic gospels. It's only seen here uh, in Matthew. But there's a very similar story, and it may read familiar to you guys, in Matthew chapter 20 at the end of that chapter, just before the triumphal entry of Jesus, uh, there are two men in the city of Jericho that are blind. And he performs uh, a similar miracle in healing them, but there's a lot of similarities. They, they both cry out, uh, son of David. They both cry out, have mercy on us. Uh, and Jesus touches their eyes and he restores them and he heals them. And in verse 27, we'll pick it up. It says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. It says that Jesus went on from there. He's still in the the region of uh, Capernaum, his uh, adopted hometown, and he is departing most likely the house of the synagogue official, uh, Jairus, who he had just healed her daughter in the previous story. So he departs from there, 
And as he goes along the way, there are two blind men that are following him around. Now, no doubt these men are amongst the, the many in the crowd that are likely following Jesus. Word had gotten out about the miracles and about the healings, and many were coming. News had spread throughout the land, and many, many people were coming. We'll hear later uh, in this gospel and in others that sometimes the crowds were so big and so large that Jesus had to withdraw. He couldn't even move. And so these two blind men are, are singled out here, out of the crowd, if you will, or at least that's the story that we get about these. And it says um, that they were blind, obviously. And so in the Bible, when we look at blindness, we see that it is, of course, a physical malady, uh, whether it was caused from birth or a disease or whatever the issue was. But more importantly, there's a spiritual picture here. And the spiritual picture is really uh, an unreceptiveness to the gospel. It's spiritual unbelief. It's spiritual ignorance. People that were blind would be unable to see, if you will, uh, the things of God, Jesus, who he was, etc. As we look in the Old Testament, we see that just about every instance uh, of blindness or someone being blind is a direct consequence to sin. It's a direct consequence to sin. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, it says, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And it goes on to list several curses. And we pick it up now in uh, verse 28 of Deuteronomy 28. And it says, The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of the heart. And if we think of just a few Old Testament stories, um, we can think in Genesis 19 of the uh, sodomites that were knocking on the door to get into Lot's house. Uh, that the angels of the Lord inflicted them with blindness because of the sin. Uh, Samson as well had his eyes gouged out, uh, effectively rendering him blind. That's in Judges 16. And then also uh, in 2 Kings 6, the Syrian army was warring uh, with the Israelites and Elisha prayed that they would be struck with blindness and the Lord fulfilled that promise and he struck them with blindness. Now in the New Testament, as we transition, we see that blindness is a consequence of sin as well, but not always. There is a difference. Um, in John chapter 9, there was a story of a man born blind, and uh, the, the people are asking, they say, who has sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And the Lord said, it was neither, but so the glory of God would be made manifest. So there was no consequence of sin in that case, but in other cases there are. Saul on, on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 was uh, met by the Lord and was struck with blindness for three days. A few chapters later, Acts 13, uh, Saul, now Paul, he pronounces blindness upon a Jewish false prophet, a, a magician, and the Lord fulfilled that promise, if you will, and the man was struck with blindness. And so we're reminded that sin has its consequences, that sin has repercussions. Sometimes it manifests as some of these physical things. Not always. That is not always the case. But sometimes it can happen. And so these two men that are blind, blind physically, of course, they've, uh, they've come to Jesus. And no doubt they've had some helpers uh, to bring them there. Uh, blindness was somewhat of actually a common issue 
uh, back in those days as you read a little bit about some of the illnesses that maybe affected people. You could be, of course, blind from birth, but there are many different uh, infectious diseases and things that would, that would happen and it would spread very easily. Uh, there wasn't the, obviously, advancement of modern medicine and things like we have today. So some of these diseases were much more contagious or you know, certainly deteriorated in some of these people's cases. And while they wouldn't be necessarily uh, unclean as some, someone like a leper or the woman with the issue of blood, that they were really separate from the rest of the people and ceremonially unclean, they would still be ostracized. They would be looked down upon. Uh, they most likely couldn't work. They had to be literally led around, you know, no seeing eye dogs and other things like that back in the day. So it was a tough life for someone that was blind. It was something that really held them back and held them down. And we're told that as they follow him, that they cry out. It says, they cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. And the, the Greek word for cry out is krazo, and it really means uh, a, a scream, sometimes of horror, sometimes of anger. Now, we can think of someone that's blind and seeking to have their sight restored. They would want to cry out, that they would be desperate, that they would be seeking you know, all that they could do. I know that would be the case for me. If I was blind, I would go wherever I would need to go, see whoever I could need to see, in order to be healed, if I knew healing was an option. And no doubt, many of you would do that as well. But that Greek word is, is pretty strong. Back in the last chapter, uh, 8 in verse 29, and the story of the two men that were uh, demon-possessed, and then Jesus cast them into the uh, swine, it says that they cried out when they saw Jesus. They cried out to him, and they said, have you come here to torment us before the time? And then later, uh, right before Jesus' crucifixion, when he was on trial, the religious leaders, we know, uh, shouted out to crucify him uh, during the trial. That was the same Greek word when they cried out, when they were screaming, when they were yelling to crucify the Lord. And so it seems to show that these men were, were clearly desperate for a miracle. They were clearly desperate for healing, and we see that evidenced by their cries. Now, we don't know how long they were blind. It could have been from birth. It could have been later in life, could have been an illness or a sickness. We don't know exactly how long. We don't know how old these men are either. So there's a little bit of ambiguity there. Um, but they could have possibly viewed this as maybe their last resort for healing. Maybe they, they were at the place that they had tried everything else. Nothing seemed to work. And they've now heard about this Jesus. They've come to him seeking that healing. And notice the cry that they have. They say, have mercy on us. Pretty much any English translation will read mercy. Uh, there the Greek word is eliao, and it means uh, roughly having a pity on someone and helping a person in a difficult circumstance. That's the idea. They were crying out for help, crying out uh, almost for Jesus to have pity on them, to heal them. And again, as I mentioned, I can assure you, I'd, I'd have a similar reaction. I think most of you would have that as well, just being desperate wanting to see, wanting to have our, our eyes opened. And we can see that the men clearly understand their physical illness. They understand the physical healing that they needed. But there was really a deeper spiritual healing that they needed. And maybe they were aware of that and maybe they were not. These men were most likely Jewish. The, um, the verses don't give us indication otherwise, as it does with other Gentiles that had received healing and were the recipients of miracles. So they were potentially uh, well-versed with the scriptures and knowing that maybe blindness was a consequence of sin. Maybe they even had a specific sin in mind that, that they knew that they had done that maybe potentially caused this. I think it's worth our consideration to think about that. 
And so as they cry out to have mercy on us, maybe there's more than just the cry for a physical healing. Maybe they knew in their heart that they needed spiritual healing, and that's what they were crying out for. Maybe in that cry, there was somewhat of a a repentance, somewhat of an acknowledgement of their sin, asking God to heal, not just the blindness, but to save, to save their souls. And we looked at that in the previous weeks with some of these healings. It's, It's ultimately about salvation. That's the the deeper picture that's going on here. And maybe that's some of us when we came to faith. Maybe there was what we had considered in our life some sort of life circumstance that was difficult. We were going through a difficult time. Uh, We didn't have hope. Whatever it was, there's, I'm sure, a myriad of stories in this room. But could it be that some of those things are even a consequence of some of our sin? That that was the way that that was manifest? But ultimately, God used those things to bring us to him. There's no way to know for sure, but again, worthy maybe of our consideration. Maybe that wasn't some of you in the past. Maybe that's some of you right now even that are at a place where you are desperate, that you are seeking uh, healing. Maybe there is some sort of sickness, disease in a physical sense, but again, more importantly, in a spiritual sense. And this story is all about the good news that God sent his son to heal. And he still has that power to do that today. So there's good news for those of you that are listening and wondering. God came to heal. And what a beautiful story that we see here. And it's beautiful that Jesus didn't stop just at the physical healing. What would it profit these individuals if their sight was restored, but their souls weren't saved? They would ultimately die. You've heard the staggering Uh, statistics on death, that one out of every one person will die. And so what would it it profit these men if they received their sight in the temporal, in the here and now, but ultimately didn't inherit eternal life? Our life here on earth is but a vapor. It really wouldn't have been of any value, of any benefit. It would have been a a band-aid on a moral wound, really. But Jesus came to do more than that. He came to save. He came for the ultimate healing of their sin. And notice that the men refer to Jesus as the son of David. They call him that, son of David. At first glance, we might not think much about that. But as we dig a little deeper, we understand that this is a messianic title. This is referring to Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew Uh, uses it in the very beginning of this book in Matthew 1.1 as he addresses the genealogy of Jesus. He says that Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he goes on and he, he continues the genealogy ultimately leading to Jesus. But this is the first time we see in scripture that someone else recognizes Jesus for who he is and calls him by that messianic title, or really calls him by by any messianic title, but specifically this one here, the son of David. And he's considered the son of David in a physical sense, and yes, that's where his genealogy comes from. But ultimately, there is a Davidic covenant, and there was a promise that was made to David. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 is where we'll find that. Also, Psalm 89, if you're taking notes, and Psalm 132. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But it was a, a common a concept in the Jewish mind that the Messiah would be the son of David. And these men give him that title. These men pronounce him as the son of David. These men believed that the Messiah had come. In chapter 8, verse 29, the demon-possessed men call Jesus the son of God. 
in verse 6 of this chapter, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, another messianic title. But again, here for the first time is when others recognize the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And the irony is that these are blind men that have come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah. The blind recognize him as the Messiah. And the sighted do not. They don't see it yet. Can I mention these men were most certainly Jewish and the record doesn't tell us otherwise. And so they were probably very familiar with a prophecy found in Isaiah. It's in the 35th chapter, verses five to six. And it says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And this section of Isaiah is considered to be sort of a partial fulfillment verse in terms of the Jewish people returning back to Jerusalem after Babylonian captivity. But um, Jesus here um, is referring to himself as he is the one that is going to be doing this work. If you turn ahead with me just two chapters, Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 2 to 5. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one, the Messiah, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Remember, this is two chapters later. They had just experienced all these miracles. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have had the gospel preached to them. And so Jesus in Matthew 11, was declaring that to himself. But here in chapter 9, these men may have already had that in mind. They may have had that realization. Though physically blind, spiritually, they had, you could say, 20-20 vision. They knew who this man was. They called him by name. They knew he was the Messiah. And they knew, most importantly, that he could heal them. That's why they were following him. They knew that he alone had that power. Verse 28 says, when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. It's likely that Jesus entered the house to get away from the crowds. There could have been so much going on, so much activity. Again, the news had spread and maybe he sought to heal them just in a more private setting. Notice that the, the blind men also don't specifically ask for their sight to be restored. It's an assumption that Jesus makes. They had cried out for mercy uh, in the street, but once they entered the house, they just approached Jesus, and he responds to them with a question. He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? He himself. Jesus doesn't say, do you believe that I can pray to my father and ask him to do this for you? I'm going to be the, the, the one doing it on his behalf. No, do you believe that I can do this, that I alone have the power to heal? Further referencing that Jesus is God. Now, faith, we know, is a, a common theme in the other healings uh, that we've looked at over the past few weeks. Uh, Matthew 8, verse 13, Jesus saying to the centurion, whose servant he healed, he says, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. In 22 of this chapter, but Jesus, turning and seeing her, the woman with the issue of blood, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. 
and at once the woman was made well. But here in this account, different than any of the others that we've looked at, faith was put forth to them almost as a condition of the healing. Jesus asked the question, do you believe that I am able to do this? Believe is the Greek word pistuo, and we could also render it as to have faith. You think of it that way, belief and faith. Every instance of uh, faith or belief in these 10 stories that we've looked at all use that same word, pistuo. So let's ask the question this way. Jesus saying to the blind men, do you have faith that I am able to do this? Now, in none of the instances is faith the magical power that compels a healing. So we need to be sure that we understand the distinction. Their faith is a confidence in who he is. Their faith is a confidence in what he can do. But it's not, again, this magical or mystical power. Reading from a commentary. When Jesus said to certain people, your faith has made you well, he was saying that their faith or their confidence in him had been the means of their restoration. The power of Christ was what affected the cure, but his power was applied in connection with their faith. Just as the faith of someone enabled them to receive healing, so healing was sometimes stymied by a lack of faith. A couple chapters later in Matthew 13, verse 58, Jesus will be in Nazareth, and it will say that he didn't perform many miracles there because of their unbelief. The unbelief of the people kept the Lord from doing these miracles. Commentator continues, in the same way, salvation comes to a sinner through faith. Everyone who is saved must believe, but it is the power of Christ that saves, not the power of faith. Faith is only the instrument. It is not the power itself. And so these two men reply to Jesus, to the question that he asks, and they say, yes, Lord. Kyrios in, in the Greek is a word for Lord, referring to him as, as master or uh, a ruler. But it also is a picture of Jesus being the Lord. It is a picture of his God nature. In verse 29, we'll continue. Then he touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Fittingly, uh, Jesus uses touch here in this miracle. I mentioned earlier that the blind were obviously looked down upon and maybe outcast from society, not working, etc. But imagine these people had to be led around, probably by hand, by others, uh, for everything that they had to do in life. They maybe didn't even leave the house much, but when they did, uh, they would basically be at the mercy of others to do certain things for them, to lead them and to guide them. And so touch was their language, if you will. Uh, we know today, from a scientific standpoint, that sometimes when people lose a certain sense uh, and that they're not able to see or they're not able to hear, that some of their other senses are actually heightened and become more attuned. It's a compensation mechanism. So it's really interesting that Jesus uses touch here for these men. But it also signifies his compassion. Now, again, these, these men weren't uh, ceremonially unclean by any means, but they were still looked down upon. There were still people that weren't necessarily desirable to be around. And it was often thought that the uh, illnesses causing uh, the blindness um, was some sort of infection. It would be contagious. And so you wouldn't be touching these people. You would definitely stay at an arm's length or if not further. But Jesus touches them. And he doesn't just touch them, any old part of their body. He touches their eyes. He touches potentially the diseased part. Having compassion, Jesus 
reaches out to them. And it's more than just a physical sense, so it's a metaphorical sense, that Jesus reaches out to those that are lost. He reaches out to those that are blind in a spiritual sense, unable to see. He reaches out for them, and he asks for faith. The verse says they were healed according to their faith. Again, not some magical power, not something that uh, means that they had to have a certain amount of faith, that it was a, in proportion to, i.e., more faith, more healing, or you're able to receive the healing only because you had a certain threshold or certain level of faith. That's not the case at all. It's uh, imperative that we understand that according to does not mean in proportion to. It just means because of, or it just means by. You were healed by your faith, not because you had a certain amount. And we have unfortunately have a lot of uh, word of faith teachers and faith healers and, and the like that would sometimes even use this verse, but many others as well, to say that you need to have a certain level of faith in order to be healed. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. So you need to keep mustering up more faith. And maybe if you get to a certain level, maybe then you can be healed. That is most certainly not the case here. Let me just give one simple thing that I think refutes this pretty well. It says they were healed according to their faith. It's really just a preposition in the Greek, but you're all familiar with the four gospel accounts, that it's the gospel according to so-and-so. In this case, the gospel according to Matthew. And at the beginning of the gospel, it's written out there. It's not a a man-made title that was necessarily put in later. It's actually in some of these uh, original manuscripts, the gospel according to Matthew. That's the same word. So we could say that this gospel that we're reading about Matthew doesn't have anything to do with the proportionality of something that Matthew has or the proportionality of his faith or anything like that. No, it is, it is the gospel by Matthew. It is his words. And likewise, these men are healed by faith, through their faith, not according to their faith, not proportionality, not according to a certain level. More faith does not mean more miracles. Amen? God is the one who sovereignly heals. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, you're aware, God does not heal, at least here, at least here on earth. There's an eternal healing that we will all receive, praise the Lord, through salvation, but we don't always receive the physical healing. I know we've talked about this before in in previous weeks as we've looked at all these different healing accounts, but it is imperative, as I said, that, that we understand this. And even in the sense that there are, there are teachers that will teach this particular verse actually teaches that, but that is categorically false. So more faith does not equal more miracles, per se, and it's a prerequisite in some cases, but not in all cases. In John chapter 5, there's a story of a lame man at the pool of Bethesda Interestingly enough, it says there were many there who were sick and and diseased and lame and various illnesses. Jesus only singles out one man, at least that's what the record shows in John 5. He singles out one man and he heals him. He asks, you know, do you want to be made well? But it isn't until later the Pharisees actually confront the man and ask, and they said, you know, who is it that that healed you? And paraphrasing, he says, I don't know. person doesn't even know. He doesn't understand the fullness of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who can heal. But he just knows that he was healed. That's all there was. So there was, at least in his case, there was not a prerequisite, which is something interesting to know. And ultimately, healing is is not contingent upon the quality of one's faith. Faith is a necessary component, but it's not the quality of the faith. Healing 
is ultimately dependent on the healer. Amen? He alone has that power. On the flip side, it's interesting to think, what would the outcome be if the men didn't have faith? Or maybe didn't have enough faith? What if he said, do you have faith that I can, that I can do this? Do you believe I can do this? And they go, well, I, I sure hope so. Uh, it's, you know, you're my last resort. I've tried everything else, so might as well. Let's see what you can do. That's not going to work. James tells us in James 1, 6 to 7, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not expect anything from the Lord. And an interesting thing to consider, if these men did not have that faith of what that looked like, Jesus would go on to criticize many people because of their lack of faith um, in this book and and even in uh, some of the other gospels as well. We saw in Matthew 6, as Jesus is talking about worrying, he says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you, clothe you, you of little faith? And the story of the storm on the sea and with the disciples, he says to them, you of little faith. When Peter walks on the water in chapter 14, he starts walking, but he takes his eyes off Jesus. He doubts. Jesus reaches out. He saves him as he's sinking. And he says, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And on the flip side of a lack of faith, we also see great faith in the scriptures. Jesus speaking to the centurion in the last chapter. says, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Not such a great faith in all of Israel. And in Matthew 15, there's a story of a Canaanite woman who brings uh, her daughter who is demon-possessed. And he says to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Interestingly enough, in those two stories where Jesus uh, lauds the faith of those couple individuals, uh, they were both Gentiles. But in this case here, these were Jewish people. These were God's chosen people. And we ask, what is faith? What does that look like? We're supposed to have faith if we want to have healing, if we want to experience salvation. Despite what many in society or culture would tell you, it's not some mystical, ethereal thing that you can say, well, I just have faith in something. I have faith in the universe. Some people would just say, well, I just have faith in faith. So, you know, something is going to happen. I just have faith. No, that's just sort of a blind hope in nothing. But really, faith ultimately has an object. We have faith in something or we have faith in someone. Even non-believers would have a faith in something, whatever that would be. We as Christians, our, our belief is in who? You guys aren't that excited about it. <laughs> Christ. Our faith is in Christ. He is the object of our faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Man, first service was more awake than you guys, which is a little, a little ironic. But we look to Jesus alone as the object of our saving faith. There we go. Lori's awake. <laughs> Hebrews 11, the opening verse, tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And as we go through that chapter, you're familiar with the Hall of Faith, and we're actually going through that on Wednesday nights, so a little shameless plug, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. We are going through that at the moment, and we're looking at all these different individuals in the Bible and the great faith that they had, and it was commended. But as you 
quickly glance, you don't even have to study, you just take a quick read through Hebrews 11, you'll, you'll notice that their faith was always because of an action. There was always a response. There was always something that they did. Here's just a quick few examples as you go down. By faith, Abel offered. He gave an offering. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. He went and he prepared and he built. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and he left his country. And when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. Do you see that there's always an action? There's always something there and that's what was lauded. That was what was praised. Faith is belief plus trust. Two things. Faith is belief plus trust. Always an action tied to it. I've told this story before about uh, Charles Blondin. He was a tightrope walker uh, in the 1850s. He was from Europe, but he came to the U.S. and he was traveling around uh, performing. I don't know, what do you call someone that walks on a tightrope? Walking, I guess. He traveled around walking on the tightrope, and one of his most famous feats was he walked across a tightrope over Niagara Falls, and he would go back and forth multiple times. Uh, crazy things, he put his like, manager on his back and walked across with them. There's actually a picture you can see from 1859 of this guy on his back walking across a tightrope. But one day he did it with a wheelbarrow, an empty wheelbarrow, and he pushed it from one side to the next, back and forth. And the crowd, of course, is amazed. They're looking on with astonishment. They're seeing what this guy can do. And he says, how many of you believe that I can walk across this tightrope again with the wheelbarrow? Of course, everyone says, well, I believe. I just saw him do it. And he says, okay, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? And nobody got in. I believe later his manager did as some sort of publicity stunt. But the idea is they believed he could do it but did they have enough faith he could do it? Because faith would get them into the wheelbarrow. Now, obviously, we wouldn't want to put our trust. I wouldn't have done it, right? So we wouldn't want to put our, our faith in Charles Blondin, but we need to put our faith in Jesus, and we need to have a response to our faith. It's enough to believe in our heart, yes, but there's always a response. And of course, I asked myself this question this week, and I'll put it before you as well, is does your faith trigger a response? Is it a head-level faith, maybe even a heart-level faith, but is there an action? Is there anything that comes out of your faith? How is your faith lived out? These two men had small actions. It might not have been great in terms of what they physically did, but they had the faith in their heart. And what did they do? They cried out and they reached out to Jesus as he was passing by. For the first time, Jesus does something very different, by the way. Jesus was always willing to stop and do whatever he needed to do to stop and be with someone in the moment and heal them. But these men cry out and he just keeps on going. And he enters the house. And the men have to then come into the house. And I wonder, was Jesus maybe testing their faith? No doubt there were many, many people in the crowds that were reaching out, crying out, whatever they were doing to try to get to him. But maybe they were frenzied and they were excited and they just got caught up in the moment. But would they take the extra couple steps, literally that's all it was probably, to go from the streets into the house? Maybe Jesus was testing their faith. Verse 30, and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that no one knows about this. 
Their eyes were open. They once were blind, but now they see. Imagine maybe they were blind their whole life, and the first thing, one of the first things they saw was the face of Jesus. They had felt his touch, they had heard his voice, and their eyes were opened, and they could now see the object of their faith. Spiritual blindness, of course, was there in some of the other people, but they could now see what's going on. And immediately, Jesus gives a kind of a surprising command. He sternly warns them that no one knows about this. It's actually a very stern word. It's more stern than we think stern is in English. It's the only time used in uh, Matthew. It means to scold, to rebuke harshly, or to exhibit irritation. Now, some of us practice this Greek word on a regular basis with our children, oftentimes on the way to church in the morning for the 8.30 service, or sometimes in the grocery store when they're screaming and whining, and we say, you just wait till we get home, right? So be of good cheer. Whenever you do that, you can now say, I'm just following in the footsteps of Jesus. But it really is an interesting warning. Why does he say this? See that no one knows about this. We don't really know why the command is given, but one likely idea is that these were the first men to publicly, uh, at least on, on record, what we have recorded in Scripture, to proclaim him as the Messiah. And maybe he wanted to keep that a little bit more quiet for a while. We don't know exactly. We know in, in other times he would say that you know his time has not yet come and various things. But for whatever reason... He doesn't want them to say what's going on. So it's potentially really more to do with the identity of of Jesus getting out more than it is with that actual healing. Why would he say not to let that happen when we had just seen all of these other various healings and miracles? Clearly, word had already gotten out. So why this command here? Verse 31 continues and it says, but they went out and they spread the news about him throughout all the land. More irony, this uh, section is filled with irony actually, but more irony is that these men who had such a great faith while they were blind, while they couldn't see, they exhibit such a great disobedience while they're able to see. They come to faith, salvation, physical healing all at the same time, and one of the first things they do is disobey a direct command from Jesus. Don't go out and do this. And what did they do? They went out and they did it. Now, it's easy for us to, you know, look at them and say, ah, you know, how could they do that? But how could they not? I mean, from a natural standpoint, how do we blame them? If any of us sitting in this room were blind and someone came in and healed you, you would be running out, you know, in the parking lot, down River Road, proclaiming what had just happened. You could actually see, so you could go down River Road now. So that would be great. And you would be proclaiming to everyone what had just happened. And quite frankly, it seems almost like a ridiculous question because you think, how could you hide what had just happened? These two men were probably known all over town as the two blind men. And if they come out of the house walking without holding someone's hand, it's a little hard to hide that, right? Oh, I can now see. It's like sort of, you've seen some of those like dateline uh, reports or those, those people get accused of insurance fraud you know, the insurance papers say, oh, this person broke his back and uh, he's in a wheelchair and he, he can't go back to work. And then they send the reporter out with the camera and he's water skiing, you know? It's like, it would be a little hard to kind of hide what's going on. Um, but nevertheless, there's a level of disobedience there, which we 
can't ignore. It was still wrong. It was direct obedience to something that Jesus said. In a further state of irony, these men were commanded not to share, and they shared throughout all the land. It says they shared throughout all the land, that the news about Jesus was spread throughout all the land. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have been given an express command to share, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And to go out and to share our faith and to share our God, good news. And by and large, we don't do that. And I'll include myself in that. Here's two men that spread news throughout all the land. How many people do we have sitting in our, uh, in our sanctuary here today? 200 people? What would it look like if we all went out and shared the good news Amen. about how Jesus healed us? Not maybe of our, of our physical things, although many of you in this room probably have stories of physical healings that Jesus performed, miracles even. But what about salvation? What about spiritual healing that he performed? What would it look like if living truth in the city of Corona went out and spread the news, spread the good news about all that Jesus has done? And I have to ask myself, Have I been obedient to that command? And I put that before you as well. How are we at sharing the gospel with others? And a prayer maybe that we would be like these blind men, not in the disobedient part, but in the sharing part. And now the second of two stories. Verse 32, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to them. We can think of uh, almost an idea of a doctor's office. These two men were going out, Two patients out. Okay, next one in. Here we go. Jesus is just continuing to perform miracles. And it says that he was brought. He was unable to cry out for help as the last two did. He was mute, of course. But people brought him, whether friends, whether family, whatever it would be. And what a beautiful picture of the task that we as believers have been given is to bring other people to Jesus. Now, of course, we know that we're not the ones that ultimately do anything in terms of faith or salvation, but we're still responsible for helping to bring people there. Maybe you were invited here today by someone, and maybe you're here listening to this message, and uh, those that brought you were faithful in following this command. And many of you sitting here maybe came to faith because of that, because someone brought you, someone shared with you, someone in a metaphorical sense, brought you to Jesus. So this man is, is mute, maybe even deaf. The, the Greek word would allow for that, deaf and mute, uh, with the idea that if someone is completely deaf, that they are essentially unable to speak as well or really formulate uh, words. In uh, Mark 7.37, it talks about a deaf man, and again, a, a deaf mute man. But Matthew specifically makes a point that this man was demon-possessed, declaring that the physical illness, the physical issue that he had was a direct result of a demonic activity. And of course, not all illness, again, is a result of that. Matthew 10, 8 uh, sort of clarifies that for us. But there is power. The demons do have power to uh, inflict or afflict certain people with things. Verse 33, after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So this story is different than the last. There's no uh, dialogue between Jesus and the man. And you would say, well, Alex, the man is deaf and mute. That would make it a little bit hard for a dialogue to happen. And uh, certainly that would be the case. But 
I don't really believe that's the reason. So this miracle is a little bit unique. In Matthew 4.24, there's a record of Jesus healing demon-possessed men. Also in Matthew 8.16, as if you're taking notes, and Matthew 8.28-32. And Jesus will heal at least two more demon-possessed men just in this book alone, and then there's uh, the accounts in the other Gospels as well. And so from Jesus' perspective, we could say this is uh, another day at the office. This is a, a routine exorcism. Uh, we're just going to come and, you know, sort of take care of this problem here. But the focus is not on the healing as much as it is on the crowd and their reaction. We're going to look at two different sides of that. So it says that the crowd was amazed. They were saying nothing like this has ever been seen in all of Israel. The reaction is likely not just to this one particular miracle. Again, many demon-possessed people had been healed. Uh, but looking at the 10 greater miracles and healings uh, in the last two chapters, the crowd were amazed at all of that. Nothing like this has ever been seen in all of Israel. Jesus cleansed a leper. He restored the lame. He raised the dead. He caused the blind to see. He healed the sick. Nothing like that had ever been seen in all of Israel. It was actually, uh, I don't want to say common, but it happened that exorcisms took place within Jewish culture. So something like this in and of itself really isn't all of that uh, odd or unique. But when you combine it, the totality of these 10 miracles that we'd seen Nothing like that had happened. And we don't know the individual response of the crowd and how they reacted and whether or not they came to faith or had belief. All we notice is that they were amazed. It doesn't give us any more than that. Charles Spurgeon uh, points out that people were quick to express their admiration, yet we see very little trace of their belief in our Lord's mission. It is a small thing to marvel, but it is a great thing to believe. And so there is a difference and just being amazed at what happened, wow, that's, that's kind of neat. Or really believing in who Jesus was and the power that he had. And now the response on the other end of the spectrum, that of the Pharisees in verse 34, they were saying, he casts out demons by the rulers of the demons. If I were to paraphrase, I would say that their response is something like this, bah humbug. They had just seen these miracles and they were completely apathetic. They didn't care about the power of God and that it was being made manifest through Jesus. They didn't care that people had their sight restored, that the lame were able to walk, that the leper was cleansed, and on and on and on. They didn't care about that. They couldn't see it. See, these individuals were blind, in a sense. Matthew 12 tells a similar story, just a couple chapters ahead, of uh, demons being cast out of a, another man. And the Pharisees would later question him and say that, you know, you do this, you cast out demons by, the, by Beelzebul, the real ruler of the demons. And we'll get to that in another message. But it's also the point where the Pharisees really start to turn from apathy to anger. They really start to hate Jesus and they'll they'll uh, plot to kill him. It will be the first time that we see that in Matthew 12. I stole this from a commentator who puts it this way. Our first story is of two blind men. Two men who, although they cannot see, do see. They see Jesus. They see him for who he is. They were humble enough to ask for his mercy, and they were healed. 
And the next story is of the Pharisees. They are also two blind men. T-O-O. While not blind physically, they are blind spiritually. These two men were too blind to see Jesus for who he was. They were too blind to accept him. And they were too blind to believe in him. In Matthew 23, Jesus will speak to the Pharisees and prescribe eight woes over them. Here's just a few. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, blind fools. Woe to you, blind men. Woe to you, blind Pharisees. These men were spiritually blind. They could see in a physical sense, no doubt. But spiritually, they were blind. They were blind to the things of God. They weren't able to see who Jesus was. They didn't want to admit it even. And so what may have gotten in the way of their disbelief? Was it pride? Was it their tradition? This kind of Jesus, this new kid on the block was bad for business for the Pharisees. They wanted to get rid of him. They, they conspired to kill him. What would cause it? Interestingly, we could think that it was maybe even the Lord. In John chapter 12, Jesus foretells his, his death to the crowd around him. And he says this, or speaking of Jesus, excuse me, it says this. But though he had performed so many signs before them, Jesus, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, in which he spoke. And this is Isaiah 6.10. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And in Romans 11:25, Paul says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And that word hardening can be rendered as blindness in Greek. A partial blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Even in Paul's own words, he says, this is a mystery, but that the gospel has been hidden from some of the Jewish people. The door of salvation opened to the Gentiles until the end, until the fullness of time, and all God's people will be saved. But as we think of spiritual blindness, as we think of being open to things of the gospel, let me just ask, how is your vision? How is your vision even today? Are you able to see the things of the Lord? Like the two men in the first story, do you have a blind faith, which is actually a good thing? A blind faith in our Lord and our Savior, seeing him as the son of David, as the Lord, as the Messiah. In our final verse, 35, Jesus was going throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is sort of a summation, not just of these two uh, healings, not just of the greater 10 healings and miracles, but really even more of Jesus's entire uh, work here on earth. He went about teaching and proclaiming the gospel 
and healing every kind of sickness and disease. Three things, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. He taught the Old Testament. He revealed new ways of the new covenant. And he healed every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. And that includes the greatest sickness and the greatest disease of sin. He died on the cross. He rose again to defeat death once and for all, one final time. And the order is even important. He came to teach and to proclaim and then to heal. Healing was an important part of the ministry, but it wasn't the main ministry, at least from the physical perspective. And we've been given, again, a great command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations in the back of the foyer as you walk out. We're to teach and proclaim. That's our role. And lead people towards the Lord, and he will provide the healing. He will be the one that will save, ultimately. But let us not forget that role, brothers and sisters. Let us not neglect the role that we have been given. It's a command. It's not just a suggestion or an idea. It's a command that we have been given. And so maybe you're here and you're listening and you're, you're wondering, maybe someone brought you a, a friend. Someone did their part and brought you here and you're wondering if you can be healed. And the answer is yes. That God sent forth his son at the right time he took on the form of flesh, the form of a man, came here to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. He was the atonement for our sins, your sins, and my sins. And that offering is what satisfies the wrath of God. And we now have an eternal life through him. So church, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the great healing work that you do in our lives. Yes, in a physical sense, and we can be grateful for the things that we experience here the miracles we might have on earth, but more importantly, the spiritual healing that is only available through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have sent him, the Messiah, the anointed one. If there's anyone that hasn't placed that trust in the Lord, uh, Lord, I, I pray that they would do that. It is an act of faith, as we learned it. It demands an action. And if they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, that they would be saved. But there is a response. Believe in the heart and confess with the mouth. It's making a, a declaration. It's praying out to God, crying out to him for his mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, if there's those that have turned away from you and need to turn back, I pray that they would do that, that they would realize um, maybe in the temporary blindness that they've had, seeking the ways of the world and doing things apart from you, um, that you would get a hold of them and you would bring them back. And that through faith, they would reach out, that they would cry out to you for salvation. And we know, Lord, that you are faithful to answer that call. You are faithful to heal. You are faithful to save. So we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Would you be with this precious congregation as we go about our week, uh, whatever we have, Lord, and help us to be used as your ambassadors to proclaim your gospel here in Corona, in our homes, in our workplaces, everywhere that we go, Lord. Oh, that it would be said of Corona that news about you spread all throughout the land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.